everyone. Um, in this second talk, we're going to think about Jesus' miracles in the Gospel of John. Uh, and I'm sure you're aware that um, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, uh, the word which is translated as miracles is the Greek word dunamis, and it literally means mighty works. But when we come to the Gospel of John, he uses a different word. So he uses the Greek word semion or semea, uh, and that means signs. So John has a different vocabulary uh, to describe uh, the signs, the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, uh, if we were to look at a, a modern translation of the Bible, then we would see that Greek word being translated in that way, signs. But why does he do that? Why does John describe them in this way? What's the purpose of, of bringing to our attention the fact that Jesus is performing signs? Well, think about a sign. Uh, what comes to mind? Uh, well, when I started thinking about this, the first thing that I thought of uh, was a signpost. And we come across these all the time, uh, don't we, in our lives? So, for example, if we're driving, um, then we would have to, uh, to look for signs to tell us what the speed limit is. Uh, or if we were um, uh, driving along and we saw this sign, we would know that we could only go one way down a certain road. Uh, this sign tells us that there's danger ahead, that there are roadworks and we need to be careful uh, and perhaps look out for some temporary traffic lights. Uh, this type of sign uh, we've started to see a lot more of recently, haven't we? Uh, and this is telling us that we need to keep two metres apart from other people in order to uh, preserve social distancing in the fight against COVID-19. Uh, I particularly like this sign. We use this uh, kind of uh, sign in, in the training that I do at work when we're teaching people about visual management. Uh, if you hit this sign, then you will hit that bridge. Uh, and, you know, it's obvious, isn't it? But And, and it's simple, but it works. Um, and, uh, and drivers will know uh, if they're um, in tall vehicles uh, that if they clip that sign, then they need to be careful, don't they? they? They don't need to be going any further. So that's what signs do. They, they impart information to us. They provide us with data. They tell us something, don't they? That's the purpose of signposts and signs. And it's the same in John's Gospel. The signs of John's Gospel are written in a particular way, to tell us something, to teach us a lesson, to impart information to us that we might learn things from them. So let me give you an example of this. I'd like you to think for a moment with me about the feeding of the 5,000. Um, so the, the point is that the feeding of the 5,000 is much more than just a miracle about Jesus multiplying bread and fish and feeding 5,000 hungry people. Of course, that's there on the surface of the story, but it goes much deeper than that because the Lord Jesus in John's gospel, and by the way, only in John's gospel, goes on to tell us, um, after that, I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. He says, I am the bread of life. So, so the point of, of that sign is to look at the bread which the Lord Jesus uh, multiplied and, and to go from that to see him. He is the bread of life. And if we eat off him, we can live forever. But it's a bit of an odd phrase, isn't it? You know, what does it actually mean to eat of this bread, to eat of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he goes on later uh, in John chapter six to tell us what this means. He says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit 
and they are life. So to eat of the bread of life and live forever is to listen to the words that the Lord Jesus speaks to us because they are spirit and they are life. And it's Simon Peter who appreciates this towards the end of the chapter when he says to the Lord Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. He understands, therefore, the importance of listening to and responding to Jesus' words, because it's only by doing that uh, that we can have eternal life. So you get the idea, don't you? Uh, This is much more than just a miracle about feeding. This is designed to teach us a lesson, uh, and it's a lesson uh, like so many of the lessons in John's Gospel uh, that is about eternal life and how we can have that in God's kingdom to come. So we're going to have a think about the signs in John's Gospel together. There are seven of them in total. You can see them there on the screen, hopefully. Um, so uh, we have the water being turned into wine, the healing, healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man infirm for 38 years, the feeding of the 5,000, what we just thought about, the storm on Galilee, uh, the giving of sight to the man born blind, and finally the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus. And some people add to that the eighth sign of Jesus' resurrection, and that's okay, you know, we can do that. Uh, if we if we if we want to I think we need to be a little bit careful about saying that there are only seven and certainly some of the signs in John's gospel uh, aren't um, introduced to us in that way we're not told that they are signs uh, and yet we understand by reading them that they are still significant miracles which are designed to teach us something so let's have a, a think about these signs together and in particular I want to observe a theme which runs through many or most of them and it's the theme of Jesus' absence. It runs through um, like a watermark in John's gospel. There are times as we read these signs when we're asking ourselves the question, where's Jesus? He seems to have disappeared. He's absent. Where's he gone? So if you're in John chapter 6, let's have a look at at the first example and think about the storm on Galilee. This is the fifth sign in John's gospel. So John chapter 6 and verse 15 tells us that when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And the disciples go off by themselves Verse 16 tells us when even was come, his disciples went down unto the sea and they entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. Uh, And there's a storm on Galilee. Verse 18, the storm arose by reason of a great wind that blew. And verse 19 tells us that when they had rowed about five and 20 or 30 furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. And Matthew's gospel adds a few details that aren't here in John. So for uh, example, uh, in Matthew, we're told that they think Jesus is a ghost when he comes to them on on the water. He says to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. And it's in Matthew that Peter goes out uh, on the water to Jesus and he starts to sink, doesn't he? And Jesus reaches out his hand 
and he saves Peter. But all of that is missing from John's gospel. Uh, instead, John includes a detail uh, which I'd like us to go back to. Uh, if you look at uh, John chapter 6 and verse 18, we're told there that it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. Sorry, it's in John chapter 6 and verse 17. It was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. And John states that explicitly. Uh, and that um, same statement is missing from the Mark uh, and the Matthew accounts of this miracle. So although we know that the disciples are alone from those Gospels, yet it isn't explicitly stated. It's only John that tells us that Jesus was not come to them. And, and that's significant. And I would suggest that you highlight that in your Bibles. This is a theme which we're going to see running through the signs in John's Gospel. It's the theme of Jesus being absent. He is not with his disciples. And John wants us to understand that. And that's why he makes this point about it. Well, before we think about the significance of that, I'd like us to think about another example. So if you come with me to John chapter four, we'll think about the second sign now. And this is the healing of the nobleman's son. So uh, John chapter 4 and verse 46 tells us that Jesus came into Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Uh, and when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So we get the point, don't we? This, this man goes to meet Jesus and it's important to this man that, that Jesus comes with him, that they go back to his house because he believes that Jesus can help his son who is at the point of death. And Jesus says there in verse 48, uh, then said he unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. And the nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. So there it is again. It's, it's really important to the man that Jesus comes and he comes now, because this is a desperate situation and his child is about to die. If only you will follow after me, Jesus, then you'll be able to do uh, something and you'll be able to hear him, uh, to heal him. And you notice there, we just read on in verse 50, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son Liveth. If we just put that together with the phrase there at the end of verse 47, for he was at the point of death. And there at the end of verse 49, he says, Sir, come down ere my child die. And Jesus is going to say, Thy son liveth. This is another example of how this theme of life is being developed in John's gospel. Remember, Jesus uh, came to the man, didn't he, who was there infirm by the pool for 38 years and he raised him from from dead, you know, from being dead, from from being in that situation for 38 years. Like dead Israel in the wilderness, he raised him to a new life. He said, arise, take up your bed and walk. And now Jesus is coming to give life again, isn't he, to uh, the son of this man who is at the point of death. He's a about to die 
And Jesus is going to say, isn't he? Don't worry, your son will live. Thy son liveth. Uh, and so uh, what happens next? Well, if you come to uh, verse 50, when Jesus says that to him, uh, the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told uh, him, saying, thy son liveth. Uh, so this is this is really important, isn't it? It's another example uh, of, of, of Jesus being absent. He speaks, he says, thy son liveth. Um, and this man has to go and find, find out. But Jesus doesn't go with him. Um, and instead, he finds out when he gets back that, that it has been indeed, according to Jesus' word, uh, and his son is healed. And if you come to verse 52, then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, thy son liveth and himself believed and his whole house so at the moment at the very moment that jesus spoke and said those words thy son liveth uh, the father understood that it was at that point precisely that the son was healed and he believed with with the whole of his house so this is another absence miracle in fact that's the whole point of the miracle jesus deliberately doesn't go with the man uh, and what does that teach us it teaches us that the man had to have faith he had to believe as he was making that journey back home with every step of the horse as he went he had to believe in what jesus had said and believe that when he got home his son would be alive and would have been healed this is a sign which is all about the importance of faith when jesus isn't there what do we need to do what do we learn from this sign well, what we need to do is to have faith. And that's what the man would come to appreciate. And that's what the disciples would have to appreciate, appreciate too, as they were there on the water alone, as Jesus was not come to them, as the storm raged about them. It was a time for them to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in him and to have faith. Well, come with me to John chapter 2. And let's think of uh, another example of this. We're coming now to the first sign in John's gospel where Jesus turns water into wine um, at the marriage at Cana in Galilee. Uh, John chapter two and verse one. Let's just set the scene. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when uh, the wine failed, when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him they have no wine so the wine's run out what's jesus going to do about it that's the question isn't it uh, and if we come to verse six we're told that there was set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the jews containing two or three firkins apiece so these are huge water pots which have been placed at the at the feast uh, in order for people to wash this is washing water this isn't drinking water by the way um, and um, Jesus is going to do something with it, isn't he? Uh, verse seven, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water 
and they filled them to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. So the servants fill up the water pots. They do as Jesus has said. They draw out the water and they're going to take it to the governor of the feast in order that he might drink it. And so all of this has been done really quite privately at the moment, uh, uh, so far up to this point. Jesus hasn't made a, a scene at all, has he? He's very quietly said to the servants, go away and do that, fill up the water pots and then draw of the water and take it to the governor. Well, what happens next? Look at verse nine. Um, we're told there, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when, have, uh, met, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. You've saved the best till last. But do you notice there how, how we're told that the governor of the feast, and I've underlined it there on the screen for you, knew not whence it was. But the servants which drew the water knew. And the point is this, uh, that Jesus could have done this publicly. He could have made a spectacle of turning the water into wine in front of everybody. He could have said, look, everybody, at what I'm about to do and got their attention. But he doesn't do that. He does it in a very, a very private way. And it's just another example of how Jesus is incognito for a lot of the time in John's gospel, nobody actually sees anything happen. The water's just changed. And, and the first that we know about it is when the governor tastes it. And again, the, the point of this sign, the lesson that it's teaching us is that this is all about having faith again. They might not know how it's happened. They might not see it happen, but they must believe that that the Lord Jesus Christ has done this. This is, this is a sign, this is a demonstration of his power. They must believe that Jesus can and will and does accomplish these things. Well, let's quickly have a, a look at an, a, another um, two examples uh, of this idea of, of Jesus being absent, absent, Jesus being incognito in the Gospel of John. We're going to think about the signs in John chapter 5 and John chapter 9. So they are the healing of the man infirm for 38 years and the, the giving of sight to the man born blind. And actually, these two signs are very similar in a lot of respects. OK, so come over first then to John chapter 5. We looked at this in our first talk, but let's just remind ourselves of some of the things that happen. So John chapter 5 and verse 5. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. And we, we thought about what that means. Verse 8, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. So that's the miracle. What happens next? Well, look at uh, the end um, of verse 9. We're told there that now it was uh, on the Sabbath. Uh, it was on the same day uh, was the Sabbath that Jesus carries out this miracle. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day 
it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Uh, so this man all of a sudden uh, starts to get uh, interrogated by the Jewish leaders uh, about what's happened. Uh, and it becomes very clear that the man is alone, that Jesus isn't there. Jesus is absent. And they really don't like the fact that this, this has been done on the Sabbath day. Uh, according to them, you know, had a whole list of things that you shouldn't do on the Sabbath. And I'm sure that taking up your bed uh, was one of them. Uh, and so they're going to give this man a bit of a grilling about what has happened. Look at verse 11. He answered them, well, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. And then they asked him, well, what man is this which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? And where is he? You know, which man has done this? And it's clear that he's not there because they're, they're asking in effect, well, where is he? Point him out to us. And if you come to um, uh, verse 13, he that was healed wist not who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. And that's really important. John, once again, is underlining, is emphasising, is, is highlighting uh, this aspect of this sign that Jesus isn't there. Jesus is absent for a period. And it's going to be a time which makes it very awkward for this man. He's going to have to answer some really difficult questions when Jesus isn't there. But then in verse 14, afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. And, and isn't it lovely that, that actually, although for a time Jesus isn't there, yet he comes back, doesn't he? Because he knows that the man needs him. And he knows that the man has some more things to learn. The man has been born again, you see. He started a new life. He once was dead and now he is alive and beginning a new life in Christ. He needs to understand that sin isn't an option anymore. He leaves, needs to leave those things behind and instead uh, follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to please the Lord God in everything that he does. We'll come over to John chapter 9. Let's think about the healing of, well, it's not the healing, it's the giving of sight to the man born blind. Uh, John chapter 9 and verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Uh, if we come to verse 5, Jesus says there, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. So he's a bit like the nobleman, isn't he? Jesus puts the clay on his eyes. And he, he then has to go and make a journey and make it alone because Jesus isn't going to go with him. And he's got to feel his way through the streets and get to the pool of Siloam and probably dived into the pool, washed the water off his eyes. And he could see uh, and he came back, didn't he, um, with uh, this sight having been granted to him. So Jesus tells him what to do. And then all of a sudden Jesus is absent and the man has to go away and he has to do this by himself. 
Uh, and what happens next? Well, Jesus continues to be absent. Jesus is nowhere to be seen. So come to uh, John chapter 9 and verse 10. And therefore said they unto the man, that's the man born blind. Well, how did this happen? How were thine eyes opened? And he answered and said, a man which is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and I washed and I received sight like the nobleman. He's had to demonstrate that faith, hasn't he? To go and do what Jesus has said. And he has had uh, his sight given to him. And then if we come to verse 12, uh, then said they unto him, well, where is he? And he said, I know not. And, and that's really important to the case that we're making here, to, to the development of this theme in the Gospel of John. Uh, where is Jesus? He's not there again, is he? That the man doesn't know where the Lord Jesus has got to. Uh, and as we work our way through the chapter, we find that, that Jesus isn't there for much of this. He's, he's going to only appear again at the end. And whilst Jesus is away, uh, the man's going to be asked lots and lots of questions by the Jewish leaders, and they're going to make it really, really difficult for him. He too is going to get a grilling. So uh, if you come to uh, verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees, him that was aforetime blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said unto them, he put clay upon mine eyes and I washed uh, and I do see. So this is like an interrogation, isn't it? Uh, if you come to verse 18, uh, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they had called the parents of him uh, that had received his sight. And they're going to give the parents a grilling as well. They too are going to be hauled over the coals uh, and they will say, well, well we don't know. Um, what's happened here you better ask him he's of age he'll tell you uh, and they say this because they're petrified of the jews and because the jews have said that if anyone confesses that jesus is the christ they're going to be thrown out of the synagogue and they don't want that to happen to them and so they say well well we don't know ask him ask our son he'll explain uh, what's happened here uh, and the man's questioned again uh, and life is being made really difficult for him. And he's perhaps thinking to himself, well, where's Jesus in all of this? Where's the man that's done this? I could sure do with him being, being here now to help me in this situation. And what's the outcome? Just come to verse 34. They answered and said unto him, thou wast altogether born in sins. And dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. He's been excommunicated from the synagogue, thrown out of it. That was one of the worst things that could happen to you. You know, the synagogue was the place where everyone went, where everyone met everyone else. It was the social uh, circle of life. Uh, and to be thrown out of the synagogue meant that you would be disowned. Your family and your friends wouldn't want to speak to you anymore. And that was the position that the man was in because the Lord Jesus Christ had given him sight and because he was prepared to give a faithful account of what Jesus had done and who he thought Jesus was. But it's lovely, isn't it, when we come to verse 35 
that Jesus isn't absent forever. He, he will come and he will find the man. Um, verse 35, Jesus heard that he had, uh, that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, dost thou believe on the son of God? When Jesus hears he's being cast out, what's he going to do? He's going to go and find him. He's going to put his arm around him and take him by the hand. And he's going to say to him, as he will develop in the next chapter, you're part of my sheepfold now. You're part of my people. You're part of my family. You might have been thrown out of the synagogue, but you're part of something much, much better now. And Jesus is going to welcome him, isn't he? Verse 36, he answered and he said, well, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, thou hast both seen him and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And what a wonderful outcome that is. Uh, to the story. It might seem that, that Jesus is absent, that the man might have been thinking to himself, well, where is Jesus now when I need him? He's healed me and he's disappeared and I could really do with him being, being here now. But the point is that Jesus is just around the corner. Jesus will come again. He will come and help. And while Jesus is absent, what does the man need to do? He needs to have faith, doesn't he? He needs to trust. When Jesus is not there, it's a time of faith, a time when faith is required. And that's what John is teaching us over and over again in these signs. This is the wonderful theme that runs through all of them, uh, like a watermark. Let's look at John chapter 11, <clears throat> finally, and look at perhaps the best example of all of this. I'm going to look at the last sign now, and it's the raising of Lazarus. This is the seventh sign in John's gospel. So John chapter 11 and verse 1. Uh, now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. So Lazarus is sick and he's going to die as a result of this, we learn. If you come to verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus when he had heard therefore that he was sick. He abode two days still in the same place where he was. So he's going to stay where he is. This is all part of his plan. He is absent and he is deliberately absent. He's not going to go. Uh, he's healed lots of other people. Uh, we read that in, in the other Gospels as well. Jesus has this great ability beyond measure to be able to heal sicknesses and diseases and he could have done that for Lazarus he could have gone and healed him just like those other people but Jesus chooses not to, not to he chooses to stay away doesn't he well if you come to verse 7 then after this um he says to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. So finally, Jesus decides to go. And if we come to verse 11, says to his disciples at the end of the verse, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I might awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he will do well. In other words, I think you'll find he's dead by now, Jesus. Um, and, uh, and Jesus says, um, uh, well, verse 13 tells us, Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken 
of taking rest in, in sleep. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So Jesus knows this. He understands what has happened. And what Jesus is going to do is he is going to go and raise the dead. Um, if we come to verse 15, this is a really important point. Jesus says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Why? To the intent that ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. So again, John is making the point in this sign that Jesus is not there and Jesus is not there deliberately. This is part of his plan because this time he's not going to go and heal. This time he's going to go and raise the dead. So come over to verse 20. Jesus uh, makes the journey over to Bethany and verse 20 tells us that then Martha as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming went and met him but Mary sat still in the house then said Martha unto Jesus Lord if thou hast been here my brother had not died why were you absent Jesus why didn't you come sooner you've healed all of those other people you could have healed my brother and verse 22 um tells us but i know that that even now she says whatsoever thou wilt ask of god god will give it thee and jesus saith unto her thy brother shall rise again so she she shows wonderful faith doesn't she she knows that jesus is able to bring him back to life and she articulates and expresses that faith to jesus in this wonderful way and jesus goes to the tomb and it's on his way there that Mary, the other sister, comes to him. So look at verse 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, <coughs> Lord, <coughs> if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. And if you just look at verse 21, you can see that she asks, or she makes rather the, the, exactly the same statement as Martha. If you had been here, then none of this would have happened. Why were you absent? Well, this is the whole point of the sign. Jesus needs to be absent in order that Lazarus might die and in order that he might raise him from the dead. Uh, verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus makes his way to the tomb. But on the way, uh, <clears throat> verse 39, Jesus said, take ye away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. And, and perhaps we're seeing a little chink in the arm, armour of her faith here. It's too late, Jesus. He's, he's been dead for four days. After four days or after three days on the fourth day, corruption started to set in. And the body started to rot and to decay. That's why it's important that Jesus was only in the grave for three days and three nights. Corruption did not set in. The Lord did not suffer his holy one to see corruption. But on the fourth day in Lazarus cases, Lazarus case, it's too late. He started to rot. He started to stink. Uh, Martha says to Jesus, how can you do anything about this now? The time has gone. But verse 41, then they took away the stone from the place where 
the dead was laid and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they might believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. And Jesus said unto them, loose him and let him go. The Lord Jesus Christ is able to to do the impossible, to raise a man who has been dead for four days when corruption has set in. This is what he can accomplish if only they will have faith. So why does it happen in this way? Why is Jesus absent? Why doesn't he just go and heal Lazarus? Why doesn't he just do it like before, like all of those other miracles? Why does he wait until Lazarus is dead? Everyone is clearly frustrated and upset that Jesus is not there to save Lazarus. Why does he deliberately stay away? Well, the answer is the same answer that we saw in all of those other signs, those other miracles. Through his absence, he is seeking to develop their faith. They must trust in him. They must trust that Jesus can not only heal, but he can raise the dead too. I might not be there, he's saying, but still you need to believe in me, even though I am absent. And I'm never far away. I'm only just around the corner. All that you have to do is to wait for me and believe that I will come and believe that I will help. And so in all of these signs, Jesus is showing his disciples and others too, that although he is not there, it doesn't mean, you know, that he has deserted them. He never desert them. He is still very much present and active in their lives, even though he's not physically present with them. doesn't mean to say uh, that he has forgotten about them. Far from it. And of course, in all of this, he's preparing them for the time when he wouldn't be with them, when he would die and rise again and ascend to be with his father in heaven. And that would be a time when Jesus physically wouldn't be on the earth anymore with his disciples. Uh, Come with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. The Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples about this, about the fact that this is going to happen, about the fact that that I won't be with you physically anymore. Uh, John chapter 16 and verse 5, but now I go my way to him that sent me. I'm going away, says Jesus. Verse 10 um, of righteousness, because I go to my father and ye shall see me no more. That time is coming when I won't be with you as I am with you now. Uh, Or look at verse 16, a little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the father. So Jesus is emphasizing this point. He's repeating it, isn't he? Over and over again. If you come finally to verse 28, I came forth from the father and am come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the father. So we get the idea, don't we? Jesus is going to leave them. He won't physically be there in their lives anymore. But from the signs that he has given, 
they should have learned that although he's not there physically, yet that doesn't mean to say that he's not there with them actively uh, in their lives. He would never be there and always be active when you need me. And it's the same for us in our lives, isn't it? Jesus is not here with us physically today. And yet we know, don't we, that he is still ever present in our lives. And, you know, there are times when we go through difficulties, when we feel anxious or or worried in our lives about something. There are times when we're not sure at what to do. We're not sure where to turn. We we might feel like the disciples as the wind roared and the waves crashed against the boat. We might feel desperate like that. We might be petrified by the difficulties that we face in our lives. We might not know what decisions uh, to make and, and which way to turn and who to talk to. Those are experiences that that all of us are going to face from time to time. And during those times, it might seem to us that we are alone. But, you know, we never are. The Lord is always with us. Uh, The Lord Jesus uh, says to his apostles there uh, at the end of Matthew chapter 28, these are his final words in the Gospel of Matthew, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, even unto the end of the age, right up until the point when the kingdom is here. Jesus is saying to them, I will be with you. And he's with us too. He's with us every step of the way which leads to the kingdom of God. It's in the letter to the Hebrews that we're told that he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. All we have to do is to have faith and to ask for help. And that help will be granted in our lives. You're in John chapter 16. Just come to verse 23 because we're told how it is that we ask for help in Jesus' absence. John 16 verse 23. In that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. So you'll be able to pray unto God, pray unto the Father, and he will answer your prayers. Verse 24, hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. If we pray to God in, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord will hear our prayers and he will always answer us. We pray through Jesus, he will always be there to help us. The letter to the Hebrews uh, writes these words about the way that the Lord Jesus is is active in this process of prayer. It, It says, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He is our intercessor. And when we come to God in prayer, he always makes that that prayer possible it, he always makes it possible for us to be heard uh, and god will always listen to us uh, because of the lord jesus christ because he is there uh, god's ears are open for jesus sake we're told uh, and 
whenever we make those prayers, we have tremendous reassurance, you know, um, because the Lord Jesus Christ understands what we're going through when we pray. Hebrews tells us in another place that um, we have a not, not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Whatever it is that's happening in our lives, whatever the temptation, whatever the trial, whatever the difficulty, whatever the infirmity, as the writer describes it, Jesus understands it. Why? Because he went through the same difficulties in his life. He understands what we're going through. He emphasizes. And so whenever we come boldly to the throne of grace, we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews goes on. Jesus knows just what we're going through. And so Jesus knows just how to help us. And we will always find the help that's perfectly suited uh, to the situation that great comfort it is. No, the Lord Jesus isn't with us physically in our lives, but he is with us every step of the way to the kingdom. And he is present and active in our lives in everything that we do and all that we have to do is to lay our lives before the father in prayer and we have this wonderful comfort that those prayers will be heard and those prayers will be answered and so i'd like to come finally um uh, to these words in john chapter 16 and verse 16 and, and just leave you with this Jesus said to his disciples, a little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. And I think there, at least in some respect, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about his return, isn't he? And that's there in these signs too, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus may have been absent for a while in so many of these signs but he was always just around the corner wasn't he and so it is that he's just around the corner now and it will only be a little while he says before you shall see me again i'm coming back to the earth the lord jesus christ promises us and the writer to the hebrews will pick up that little phrase when he writes this, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. And he won't tarry, he won't wait, he will be here. It's only going to be a little while. We won't have to wait much longer. The Lord Jesus Christ surely will be in the earth very shortly. And we can see that, can't we? Uh, from the signs in the world around us. It won't be long. It will be just a little while before he comes again. He's just round the corner, as he was in all of those signs. He will come again to still the storms that rage in the world, to still the storms that rage in our lives. He will come again to save those who are oppressed, to gather together all those who have suffered in his name. He will come again to raise the dead, with the power of his voice, just as he did Lazarus. 
who will come again to grant all those who have been faithful everlasting life in his kingdom. He's given us that promise. Yet a little while and ye shall see me. And he says to us, in the meantime, the just shall live by faith. And that's the lesson, isn't it? That all of those signs teach us that when it would seem that Jesus is absent, it's a time for faith. It's a time for trust. It's a time for looking for him and for waiting for his return. For the time will come that he has promised us. Thank you. It's been a, a difficult year, hasn't it? Who would have thought that 2020 would have turned out like this? Uh, the news has been full of bad news, hasn't it? We've seen coronavirus hit the world and millions of people have, have been infected. Hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives. Many more are seriously ill. Uh, it's affected the economy. So I was reading yesterday how uh, in April the economy in the UK shrank by 20%. That's the worst on record. Uh, and as a result, uh, and many people have lost their jobs uh, as a result of that. Um, and it's affected you too, hasn't it? So uh, uh, the schools have closed, the colleges have closed, uh, the universities have closed. Uh, and if this is an exam year for you, then uh, it, it, it's tremendously complex, isn't it? Because you're uh, at the mercy of your teachers, uh, not knowing what grades you're going to get uh, and what's going to happen next in your life. So it's a time of great uncertainty for, for many, many people, not just in this country, uh, but throughout the world. Uh, and then there's lockdown and there's social distancing and the bad news just uh, keeps going on and on, doesn't it? But I want to park the bad news. I want to leave that behind because um, this afternoon instead, I, I, I want us to focus on good news and on positive things. We're going to have a positive outlook in our talks this afternoon and we're going to think about the good news that is the gospel and in particular the gospel that we're going to look at together is the gospel of John and you know it has an incredibly positive message for us amongst all of this negativity it's a gospel which is full of hope and did you know that the gospel of John uh, talks about everlasting life or eternal life more than all of the other gospel records put together. Um, I did a little search uh, using a concordance and, and found to my surprise that Matthew uh, only mentions everlasting life three times, Mark twice and Luke three times. But when we come to the gospel of John, well, we find that phrase or, or a similar phrase uh, being used 17 times. So this is a great theme which runs through this gospel this idea that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us hope of everlasting life in the kingdom when he will come again. And actually, the Gospel of John ends with this, with this summary statement. Uh, he sa it says there in John chapter 20 and verse 30 that many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written, in other words, all of the material that's there in John's Gospel has been specifically selected. These things are written, why? That ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And that's our Heavenly Father's greatest wish, that he may be able to grant us everlasting life in the kingdom when Jesus uh, will come. Uh, and that's why this gospel has been written. That's what John's telling us there. These things are written that we might uh, know about the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for us and that we might believe that uh, so that God can give us a place uh, in his kingdom if we faithfully respond to that word. So that's what we're going to be thinking about uh, together this afternoon, this great positive message, this good news uh, that's contained in the Gospel of John about life through his name. Well, will you come with me uh, to that chapter that we've just read, uh, to John chapter three, and we're going to kick off by thinking about this man, uh, Nicodemus, who came to meet Jesus by night. Uh, John chapter three, verse one tells us that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles uh, that thou doest, except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there's Jesus saying to Nicodemus, if you want to be part of the kingdom, there is a prerequisite. There's something that you must do. You must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. He, he doesn't know what it means to be born again. Uh, and so uh, he says to the Lord Jesus, well, how can a man be born when he is old? there in verse four. Can he enter into uh, his mother's womb for a second time and be born? And Jesus answered, verse five, verily, verily, I say unto thee, unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So there Jesus qualifies what he had meant by being born again. Being born again means to be born of water and of the spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, being born of water, I think, is relatively obvious. I think the Lord Jesus is speaking about being baptised, that that's something that's necessary if we're to be part of the kingdom. But he also talks about being born of the spirit. What does that mean? Well, he's speaking about becoming spiritual people, about changing from being people who, who went and did their own thing and led their own natural lives becoming people who now are going to do the things that the Lord has commanded them to do in their lives and becoming spiritual people. And he'll go on in verse six to say that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So we're all born of the flesh and that's how things start. But he's saying to Nicodemus, you need to change in your mindset. There needs to be a moral change in your life so that you become a man who wants to follow after me and, and, and to look to God and to seek to to follow my example uh, in your life. That's the change that you need to undergo. Uh, and if we come over to verse 14, this is how it ends. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ says uh, Nicodemus can look forward to. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. He's talking about his crucifixion, isn't he? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish 
but have eternal life. So Nicodemus, if you make that change, if you commit your life to God through me, if you accept me as your saviour who will die for you, if you believe in these things, then you can have eternal life. And that's the great promise, isn't it, that the Lord Jesus makes to all of us. And isn't it lovely to just compare the start and the end of this episode? How does it begin? It begins with an old man. That's, that's what Nicodemus is. He's at the end of his days, at the, at the end of his life. There isn't much time left. He's an old man. And it ends with the promise of eternal life. Starts with an old man. It ends with eternal life. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you can have this if only you will believe. And you need to make this change in your life so that this can be possible. But it goes on in verse 18, if you'll come there with me. Jesus says, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. And I want to draw your attention to a very small word. It's a small word, but it's an important word in John chapter 3 and verse 18. And if you want to underline it, it's the word already. Jesus says, he that believeth not is condemned already. And can you see that the Lord Jesus is breathing into this situation a great sense of urgency? He's saying to Nicodemus, you need to make your decision and you need to make it now. If you're not going to believe, you were condemned already. Now is the time to act, Nicodemus. Now is the time to make your decision. I'm offering, offering you eternal life if you will believe. What's going to be your response? Have you made that decision already? Because you need to be thinking about it. We're going to continue with this idea because this becomes a great theme as we work our way through the Gospel of John. Time and time again, people, uh, Jesus will say to people, this is your time. Your time is now and you need to be making a decision now in your lives. Now is your time, Nicodemus. That's what Jesus is saying to him. So if you come over with me to uh, John chapter 4, we're going to think now about the next episode in John when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you come to John chapter 4, verse 5, we read there, that then cometh he, Jesus, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Uh, and he's going to meet a woman. Um, Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. It was about the sixth hour, and there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. Uh, and his disciples have gone away. So this is a, a, an intimate conversation now that's taking place just between Jesus and this woman. Uh, and we read there um, in verse uh, nine that the woman says to him, well, why are you asking me to give you a drink? You're a Jew, and I'm a woman of Samaria. So you should know, Jesus, that Jews and Samaritans, well, they don't talk to each other. So why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus says to her, look there at verse 10. Um, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, 
thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. I'm asking you for a drink, yeah. But if you knew who I was, it's you who would be asking me for a drink. And I'm able to give you living water, says Jesus. Maybe come on to verse 11. The woman says to him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? And it's interesting um, to note there that the word um, which is translated as well, the well is deep, in the Greek is that word uh, that you can see on the screen, the word freya, okay? And it means just that. It means a well. And when we think about wells, we think about well, the well that we see there in the picture, don't we? Of, of old constructions. This one was hundreds of years old. They go down deep, don't they, into the ground. And they're, they're static, immovable objects. And the water is right down deep in the bottom. Uh, so that's the kind of well uh, that this word is describing here. But it's interesting when uh, we move on. Uh, in John chapter 4 to verse 13, that a different word is used when Jesus talks about wells. So John chapter 4 and verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water out of this well will thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. And the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So there's this promise again in John's gospel. Whenever you come across the words everlasting or eternal life in John's gospel, get them underlined. 17 times he speaks about this idea. It's this wonderful theme. That's what the Lord Jesus is promising all those who will believe. And he's promising it to this woman. And when he talks about a well of water springing up, into everlasting life, well, Jesus uses a different word. Uh, it's the word pege in the Greek, and it literally means a fountain. So just contrast that with the word that's been used previously to describe that natural well, that static, immovable, old object, okay, that never changes. Now Jesus is talking about a different kind of well, a well of water, that springs up into everlasting life. And the word pege means a fountain. This is full of energy, isn't it? And vitality in the water springs out of it. This is a different kind of well altogether. And in this passage, whenever we think about the natural wells, uh, it's the word freya that will be used. And whenever we think about the spiritual water that Jesus is offering, it's always this word pege, a fountain which is used. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is offering her and offering us. A well of water springing up into everlasting life. Well, question for you. Um, can you remember a time when you were really thirsty? Perhaps after uh, being involved in, in sports, maybe you played a game of football or you ran a race or something like that. And at the end of it, you were really, really thirsty. And you'd been thirsty for ages. You'd had to wait for a drink. Um, and you got to the point where you were absolutely desperate. And then you got that drink, that nice ice cold glass of water, and you drank it down in one. In fact, you drank it down so quickly that the ice made your teeth hurt. That happens, doesn't it? 
Now, can you remember a situation like that? We've all been in, in that kind of situation, haven't we? And in Israel, it would be much worse because it was a very dry and arid climate, a desert climate. Um, so thirst would be a regular experience. And Jesus is picking up on that idea, on that desire that all people feel, um, that, that desire to have a drink when we're thirsty. And he's using that metaphor to say to us, that's how I want you to desire me. I want you to be really thirsty for me, for following me, for listening to my words and putting them into practice in your lives. That's, that's the kind of desire, the kind of thirst that I want to see there in your lives. And if, if that's how you are, if you really, really want to be one of my disciples, if you show that kind of faith in your life, well, well Jesus says, I'm going to reward you with eternal life in my kingdom because those are the sort of people that I want to be in my kingdom. Well, as we read on in John chapter 4, uh, we find out more about the woman. And I'm afraid to say that her life is a mess. Uh, she's had five husbands and she's on husband number six. Um, and she's got all sorts of uh, funny ideas, as the Samaritans had, uh, about, about where she should worship. So uh, the Samaritans believed that they should worship the Lord God at Mount Gerizim. And they were constantly arguing with the Jews because the Jews stated that true worship should take place in Jerusalem. And so there's this argument about geography. Where should the true place of worship be, Gerizim or Jerusalem? And she brings this argument to Jesus and asks him what he thinks. And if you come to verse 21, we'll see what Jesus says about this. Uh, Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the father ye worship ye know not what we know what we worship for salvation is of the jews but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father seeketh such to worship him so jesus is saying to her um that that actually the geography doesn't matter it doesn't matter whether you worship in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. What the Father wants, what the Lord God wants from you and from each of us is that we worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what the Lord God wants. He wants it to be from the heart, from our very spirit. And he wants it to be in truth. He wants us to worship him in the right way, in the way that he has described for us there in his word and there's the lord jesus saying to her this is what matters not the geography but the way that you worship um, but you notice there um three words which again are ever so important and, and underline these in your bibles uh, if you will he says to her that the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the father in spirit and in truth. And he'd said to Nicodemus, suddenly, you need to be making the decision already. And now he's saying to this woman, the hour cometh and now is when true worshippers shall worship the Father in this way. This is your time of opportunity now. You should be doing this now. Looking at your life, 
and making decisions in your life about following me now. That's Jesus' message to her. Like Nicodemus, he's giving her this sense of urgency, uh, isn't he? This is your window of opportunity. Go and do something about it. I'd like to just explore a little Bible echo uh, and, and um, uh, see where the Lord Jesus Christ gets this phrase from worshipping the Father in spirit and in truth. So keep a finger in John chapter four and come with me in your Bibles, if you will, please, to Joshua chapter 24. Uh, and we'll see um, where the Lord Jesus gets these words. So Joshua chapter 24 and let's look at verse 13. So um, we read, I have given you a land for which ye did not labor. This is the Lord God telling his people what he's done for them. And cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them of the vineyards and the olive yards, olive yards which ye planted not and do eat. This is what I've done for you. I've brought you into this land. Now, therefore, Fear the Lord and serve him, says Joshua, in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served in the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. So that's where the Lord Jesus has got this phrase or a similar phrase, worshipping the Father in spirit and in truth. It's from Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14, if you want to make a note which talks about serving the Lord, worshipping him in sincerity and in truth. And it's the same idea. The Lord Jesus is getting at the same thing uh, that Joshua is getting at here. Uh, but it goes on, doesn't it, in verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Joshua says. Uh, but notice the words there. If you're going to make a decision, you need to make a decision now. Choose you this day who you're going to serve. The Lord God wants you to worship him in sincerity and in truth. And you need to decide now whether or not you're going to do that. And the Lord Jesus, you know, picks up on that message, doesn't he? In John chapter four, when he's speaking to the woman and he says to her, you need to worship in the right way. You need to, you need to change your life. Your life's a mess. You need to change that life. You need to believe in me. And you need to come to worship the father in the right way through me. And now is the time to be doing something about it. Now is the time to make that decision. And, and so we can see, can't we then, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is offering this woman, as he had offered Nicodemus, the great promise of everlasting life. But it's up to her to make a response. And what is that response? Well, if you come over to verse 25, we'll see. Uh, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, when he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speaketh unto thee am he, I am the Messiah. Uh, and it goes on in verse 28. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, come and see 
a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And that's remarkable, isn't it? Why had the woman gone to the well? She'd gone to the well with her water pot in order to fill it up that she might have a drink. And now after she's heard the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now after he's challenged her to change her life and go away and do something about it, what does she do? She leaves the water pot because she's thirsty for something else now, isn't she? She's thirsty for following Jesus and for drinking of that water which will lead to everlasting life. And what's she going to do? She's going to go away and tell as many people as she can about Jesus. Because he has filled her life with hope and she wants to share that hope with others. It's lovely, isn't it, how, how this episode ends up. So it's the same for us. That, this is the lesson that we take from this. Jesus off, is offering to us everlasting life. But we need to decide now. This is our window of opportunity now. And we need to follow the example of the woman and to leave the water pots of the world behind us and go after Jesus and follow him in the way that leads to everlasting life in the kingdom. Well, come with me to, to John chapter five. Let's have a look at another example of this. Uh, John chapter five um, is uh, about the man by the pool uh, of Bethesda and uh, the Lord Jesus is going to heal this man. He's been infirm there for 38 years. Let's just introduce the account in verse 2. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And they're waiting by the pool because supposedly this pool has healing qualities uh, and if we look at verse five there's a man there a certain man was there which had an infirmity 30 and eight years uh, and Jesus is going to see this man and he's going to heal him he's going to help him verse eight Jesus saith unto him rise take up thy bed and walk and immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked uh, and I'd like to, to draw your attention to another Bible echo that's going on here. We've been told in those words that the man was there for 38 years and Jesus tells him to rise up, to take up his bed and walk. Right, come with me, keep a piece of paper or something in John chapter 5 and come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 2 this time. And let's just observe this Bible echo. So in Deuteronomy, uh, the children of Israel are on the threshold of, of going into the promised land. Uh, and we read in verse 14 uh, that they're told the space in which we came from Kadesh Barnea until we were come over the brook Zered was 30 and eight years until all the generation of the men of war were wasted out from among the host uh, as the Lord swear unto them. So they were in the wilderness for 38 years. And the old generation died out in the wilderness during that 38 years. That's what that verse is saying to us. And this man has been in that state for 38 years. And John tells us that deliberately. Why? Because he wants us to liken him to dead Israel. Israel that died in the wilderness. This man is as good as dead. That's the point. Uh, but if we come to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Uh, 
chapter 2 and verse 24, we read how they are told to rise ye up, take your journey and pass over the river Arnon. And so uh, their entry into the promised land will begin. And notice again how the Lord picks up on those words. Rise ye up, take your journey and pass over. The Lord Jesus will say, rise, take up thy bed and walk. So although the, the man has been dead, if you like, like Israel, dead in the wilderness for 38 years, Jesus is, is saying to him, you can be like the new generation. You can have life. You can take up your bed and like them, you can walk now towards the kingdom of God. So it's a lovely Bible echo, uh, isn't it, that's taking place there uh, between John chapter 5 and Deuteronomy chapter 2. So, so this is what the man is saying. You don't have to be dead anymore. You don't have to be in this condition anymore. If you believe, then you can have life. That's what Jesus has come to do. He has come to give life to the dead. All the man has to do is to hear and to obey Jesus. And he does that. If you come back to, to John chapter 5 uh, and look at verse 8, uh, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and he took up his bed and walk, uh, walked. He does as Jesus said. He, immediately he is made whole and he is cured of his affliction. And if we come to verse 24, we're told what the lesson is that, that arises from all of this. Deutero uh, sorry, John chapter 5 and verse 24 tells us, uh, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So if you're like the man, Jesus is saying, if you hear my word, and you believe on him that sent me, so if, if, if you go from hearing to believing, then you will have everlasting life. That's what I'm promising you, says Jesus. And you will not come into condemnation, but you will be passed, like that man was passed, from death unto life. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ uh, can do for each one of us. But notice what it says in verse 25. Jesus says, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. And he goes on in, in the next few verses to talk about the time when he will return and how uh, he will speak and the graves will be opened and the dead will be raised. And that's what Jesus means when he says the hour is coming when the dead shall hear the, the voice of the Son of God and shall live. But notice also what he says. There's that little phrase again, isn't there, that he had used to the woman. The hour is coming and now is. Get that underlined in your Bible. The, the hour is coming and now is, he's saying to those people who are listening. And he's saying to us, now is the time to hear. Now is the time to obey. And Jesus says, if we do that now, then we can have everlasting life in the kingdom when the Lord Jesus Christ will come. Can you see how this theme is, is developing all the way through John's gospel in these accounts? The time is now to make our answer and to respond 
to Jesus call. We come over to John chapter 7. We're going to have a look at one last example of this before we finish in John chapter 12. So John chapter 7 uh, first, please. And we're going to think about uh, Jesus' uh, encounter with his brothers uh, and uh, a discussion that takes place between them. John chapter 7 and verse 2. Now the, uh, the feast of the Jews, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works which thou doest. For there is no man that doest anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Uh, and can you hear in those words a bit of a challenge uh, that the, the brothers are making to the Lord Jesus? Uh, if you are who you say you are, prove it. That's the idea, isn't it? If, if thou do these things, show thyself to the word, uh, world. If you're the son, son of God, show it to people by the things that you do. So, so they're laying down this challenge for Jesus. Uh, and if we look at verse 5, we can see why they're doing this. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Well, what's Jesus' response to them? Verse 6, then Jesus said unto them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. My time's not yet come. It's not time for, for me to go and to fulfill all of those things that the Father has got planned for me. I know that I'm going to go to the cross and die and rise again. All of that, that's in the future. Though. My time is not yet come. Now is not the time for those things. But he says, your time is always ready. It's not my time, you see. It's your time. Why are you looking at me? You ought to be thinking about yourselves and what your response is now in your lives. Jesus will underline that in verse 8 when he says to them, my time is not yet full come. It's not time for God's purpose for me to be fulfilled. You need to be thinking instead about yourselves and what a powerful lesson that is for us what a an important consideration that is for us in our lives our time is always ready now is our time now is the time that we need to be thinking about committing our lives to the lord jesus christ well jesus does go up to the feast actually he goes in secret uh, and later he stands up in in the feast and he uh, he speaks to the people and i want to cut to verse 33 and just see some of the things there that jesus says to the pharisees and to the jewish leaders uh, so john chapter 7 and verse 33 then said jesus unto them yet a little while am i with you and then i go unto him that sent me ye shall seek me and shall not find me and where i am thither ye cannot come. And I can't help thinking, you know, that his brothers who had gone to the feast would hear those words. And what's Jesus saying to them? He's saying what he's already said, that I'm, I'm with you just for a little while. And then I'm going, I'm going to go and be with my father. I'm going to him that sent me. And then ye shall seek me and shall not find me. You see, the window of opportunity is only short. There will come a time when you won't be able to find me. 
I think the Lord Jesus, by the way, is quoting the words of uh, Isaiah chapter 55 when he says that. When, when the Lord says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. And, and it's suggesting, isn't it, that there, there will be a time when the Lord cannot be find, found, when it's too late. Uh, and there's Jesus underlining that message to his brethren and to all of those other people who are listening. Um, find me while you can. Life is short. Now is your time of opportunity. Now is the time to respond. Well, let's close in John chapter 12. And let's have a look at, at one final episode which really drives this point home, drives this theme home that we've been seeing in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12 and verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. And there's going to be this big question about whether or not these Greeks ought to be allowed to see Jesus. And I think that they are admitted and Jesus does speak to them. And they're listening when he says these words. Come to verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the son of man should be glorified. So remember what he had said there in John chapter 7 to his brethren. My time is not yet come. Now is not the time for me to fulfill my father's purpose. It will come, but now is not the time. And now as we come to John chapter 12, that time has arrived. Now is the time for Jesus go, to go to the cross and to give his life on the cross for the sins of the world. And what does Jesus say about this? About the fact that his hour is come? It would fill us with dread, wouldn't it? Knowing that that time had arrived. But what does Jesus say? Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? I'm, you know, he was concerned about going to the cross. It made him anxious. Now is my soul troubled. What am I going to say about it? He says. Father, save me from this hour. Oh no, that, that's not what I'm going to say. But for this cause, for that reason, came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it. Again, there is the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I realise that this is God's purpose for me. I realise that this is God, what God wants me to do. And he is absolutely motivated and driven and dedicated and committed, isn't he, to fulfilling his father's purpose. He will come to that hour, to that time, with absolute determination. And, you know, I think that we, we, we ought to always have that in our minds. That was the commitment that the Lord Jesus Christ showed to each one of us when the time came. For him to give his life for us. He grasped it, didn't he, with both hands. He seized the day. He seized the hour. And so let's ask ourselves the question. When Jesus says to us, now is your time. Now is your hour. How are we going to respond? Are we going to do the same for him as he did for us? That's a question, isn't it, for us to consider. Uh, we'll come to verse 24 with me. 
Now, Jesus is talking about discipleship here when he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So he's using a, a, met, a metaphor from, uh, from uh, the natural world here, isn't he? Uh, when he, he's talking about a, a seed falling to the ground and it dies and it goes into the ground, uh, but soon it germinates and the roots go down and the plant grows up and it, and it brings forth fruit. And he's saying, that's what a life of discipleship is like. You, like you die, uh, the old man dies and is left behind in the waters of baptism and you begin a new life and you grow up and you uh, bring forth fruit to the honour and glory of your heavenly father. So here's Jesus describing the process of discipleship and he goes on in verse 25 to say that he that loveth his life shall lose it. But he that hateth his life in this world, if you choose to do that, to hate this life and to put it to death in the waters of baptism, well, this is what he offers you. He says, you shall keep it unto life eternal. If you show that kind of faith and belief and you put it into practice by being baptized, then the Lord Jesus Christ is offering you eternal life in his kingdom when he comes again and that's a wonderful message isn't it for, for all of us the lord is saying that we can look forward to this this wonderful fulfillment of god's purpose we can be part of it that's great news isn't it that's good news indeed in a world which is full of, of real negativity and bad news at the moment aren't we so wonderfully privileged uh, to be able to read about this good news uh, in the word of God. This is the gospel of life which has been extended to each one of us. And the question then is, what are we going to do about it? Let me leave you with these words from, from John chapter 12 and verse 35. Then Jesus said unto them, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. And the key word in these verses is the word while. Get that underlined in your Bibles. Yet a little while is the light with you. We have the light here. That the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, there in the gospel message before us in our Bible. Walk while ye have the light. While ye have the light, believe in the light. Read it and do something about it in your lives, that ye may be the children of light. We have this wonderful opportunity, don't we? But it's a limited opportunity. And we need to seize that opportunity. The Lord Jesus is saying to us, walk while ye have the light. We have the light now. And our time is now, says Jesus. How will we respond?